Chapter Twelve of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Blockades of the Past and the Future. Present compared with past conditions. Lessons of former blockades. Plan of the Northern States. Action of the Gulf Stream. Searchlights, their value to blockaders and blockaded. Quick firing guns. Speed of modern ships as affecting a blockade. National character. Battleships and cruisers. Although it is extremely improbable that the world will ever again witness a war carried on under conditions similar to those obtaining in the contest carried on between the North and South in the sixties, still it is possible, as recent events have shown, that the United States might find themselves involved in a struggle with a first-rate maritime power. If this were the case, the first step to be taken by that power would be to blockade the United States ports. This being so, it is interesting to consider how, owing to increased speed, quick-firing guns and searchlights, the relationships between blockaders and blockade-runners have been affected during the last thirty years. In the Civil War the conditions were very different from those likely to occur in the future. The blockade-runners of those days were unarmed, and their business was to dodge, not to fight, the blockaders, and the shortness of the run before a safe port could be reached made possible a heavy outlay for building and maintaining special vessels. But to my mind the most salient alteration in the conditions affecting the question is the introduction of quick-firing guns, searchlights, and increased speed. Before considering the effect of those changes on the future of blockading, it will be as well to ascertain what lessons were learnt from the blockade of the American coast. We soon discovered that with due care and pluck the risk was far less than people believed, except in a few cases our losses were caused by ignorance of position in making the port. In some cases this was owing to the fact of our being chased about by day, in others it was caused by the irregular action of the Gulf Stream, and in some cases it was due to neglect and want of care in keeping a proper lookout at daylight, also to not keeping clear of vessels when seen, and to steaming too fast when not necessary, thereby causing smoke which discovered to the blockaders the position of the runner. Discovery, after taking all possible precautions, by a faster vessel was the cause of a small minority of captures. Again, the blockade was carried on on a wrong principle. The northern plan was to keep a number of ships close off the port, as a rule anchoring by day and by night moving close in, and a few ships at a moderate distance from the land. This plan enabled runners to lie out at a fair distance from the shore at sunset, so as to run in when the time came, having the whole night before them, should they be seen. On coming out, we felt that after the first ten miles or so from the shore there was little chance of anything seeing us before daylight, and if we were seen then, the inshore squadron could not join in the chase. Off Bermuda I rarely saw a cruiser. Off the Bahamas there were three or four, but not well placed. At sea most of the cruisers were in pairs, as far as I could make out, so that their limit of vision was only that of one and in such a case there is always the possibility of the one trusting to the other to keep a good lookout. 
the action of the Gulf Stream was an important factor in the calculations which the blockade runners had to take into consideration. Its rate is so uncertain that unless you had taken a sight the day before you got in, you could not depend upon your position, and although it could be verified by the soundings, it could not be laid down by them alone. Star observation from the uncertain horizon could not be depended upon, and the moon, of course, was not available. On the other hand, the general haze was in our favour. That in the future there will ever be a similar blockade is improbable. It will be one of armed ships against armed ships, and the only exception, if it can be called running a blockade, will be that of armed merchant ships bringing food to England, which will be required to meet cruisers on the open sea and not to run in and out of a blockaded port. I will now take up the three points of speed, quick-firing guns, and searchlights. To begin with searchlights, on first thoughts the searchlight would appear to be a formidable weapon in the hands of the blockader, but on consideration I don't think it is so, excepting perhaps in the case of a runner being chased at night or into the night by a cruiser of equal or superior speed which could, by means of her searchlight, keep her quarry under observation and, if within range, perhaps speedily sink her. In the dash through an inside squadron lying off a port, this would not apply. True, it would be very uncomfortable for the blockade-runner to find herself within the sphere of a dozen searchlights all around her, but it would be equally uncomfortable for the ships exhibiting those lights were they within range of the protecting fort, as they would most probably immediately be plugged by its guns. Moreover, a fort supplied with searchlights could be constantly flashing them over the area comprised within the range of its guns, and this would tend to force a blockading fleet to keep at a more respectable distance, and so widen out and render the passage between its lines more easy for the blockade runner. The introduction of the searchlight, therefore, appears to me to be in favor of the runner. I assume that the light is in use at the port from which the runner starts and is protected by guns. As most likely it will be at fixed points, and as there can be no object for secrecy in its use, it can be flashed from time to time irregularly, so as to show whether the vicinity of the port is clear of hostile cruisers or not. No cruiser will care to come within range of the light, Consequently, the runner will have the advantage of seeing his road is clear before him, before he starts, and the further out the cruisers are, the further apart, given equal numbers, must they be. On the other hand, the blockader wishes to keep his position dark and will not use his light for fear of being seen, so it is useless to him. Again, a light on the mound at Fort Fisher would have been invaluable to us. The light thrown up into the air would have been of no use to the blockader, while to us it would have fixed the position and enabled us to run in with confidence. For my part, if in command of a blockader, unless it was to call friends to my assistance, I would prefer not to use the light. The present condition of affairs with regard to quick-firing guns and the armament of modern war vessels, in my opinion, would be distinctly in favour of the blockader. Seeing how many more of this description of gun are carried by our modern ships compared with the slow-firing old-fashioned guns of thirty years ago, to say nothing of their increased range and accuracy, I fear a blockade-runner would stand a poor chance, 
if she allowed herself to come within the range of the guns of a cruiser so armed, at all events in daylight. Of course at night, and if she were within range of the guns of a protecting fort, her chances would be more equally balanced, as the fort would be supplied with similar guns to those of her assailants, and would doubtless use them with effect. I am of the opinion, therefore, that the modern gun is distinctly in favour of the blockader as compared with the rudder. The report of the quick-firing gun is much sharper, and the flash much more brilliant than that of the old-fashioned gun, and this constitutes an additional element in favour of the blockader, for the report and flash, being heard and seen at a greater distance, would call any neighbouring cruiser to the blockader's assistance. Though the increase of speed attained by modern ships affects both sides, the enormous speed now developed by cruisers and torpedo destroyers would seem at first sight to give the blockading force a distinct advantage. But if war vessels have improved their speed, merchant steamers have done the same, and, as I have pointed out in previous chapters, the blockade-runner has several points in her favour by always being in good-going condition and on the alert, whereas the blockader cannot always have steam handy or be ready for the advent of the runner on the scene. If, however, the maritime power in question could afford a large number of exceedingly fast cruisers and torpedo-catchers to be constantly patrolling the seas adjacent to the blockaded ports, and could keep those vessels supplied with coals, I think the runner's chances of success would be materially reduced under the new regime. But could this be done, seeing the difficulty there would be of procuring coal and supplies from perhaps a distant base? There is one factor resulting from increased speed which certainly is in favour of the runner, that is, in consequence of her being at sea a shorter time while making her hazardous passage, her risk is diminished. And this is a material point. In the olden days it was considered a fast passage if the distance between Wilmington and Nassau, which could now be traversed in some thirty hours, was covered in fifty. On the whole, therefore, increased speed is in favour of the runner. Speed requires coal, and a man who knows what he has to do can economise coal to an extent unattainable by the man whose movements are uncertain. He can be either going full speed with clear fires, or be ready for it to a greater extent than a man who is waiting until his speed is required. As probably in the future there will not be short runs from shallow ports, the runner can be of a size equal to, if not greater than, the blockader. Consequently, unless in smooth water, more likely to attain greater speed. A point of great importance which should not be overlooked is the effect of national character. In the American war, with the exception of one or two Danes, all the officers and crews of the runners were either British or Southerners. It is a question whether any other European state would show sufficient spirit of enterprise to carry a blockade on a large scale to a successful issue. What is wanted in blockade-runners is not only capable leaders, but a large number of people who will trust each other and their leaders. Hitherto I have only considered the question of evading a superior force outside, and of being prepared to run and not to fight unless necessary. A fleet, if going to sea, ought to go by day and fight its way out. A squadron of cruisers, on the other hand, may find it advisable to slip out night by night and meet at a given distant rendezvous, at the same time being prepared to act on their own individual account if necessary. 
i.e. if they find that the chance of the original plan cannot be carried out. Ships of the line in battle cannot do this. They must in all probability fight together or fail, as their not being able to come out without fighting shows that there is a fleet of battleships outside. If equal powers are inside and out, I do not think that any blockade can be made effective. The chances of breaking a modern blockade compared with those which existed in the sixties are much the same, provided the runner has the proper tools to work with, in the shape of speedy and seaworthy steamers, commanded and manned by determined and cautious men. End of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor